Totally Football Show. Today, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas, with kindly old Klopp getting all the local kids each a game. Arsenal looking forward to Mikel Arteta's presence and arriving at Goodison, a jolly-looking man with the sack right behind him. And with glad tidings from around the continent too, Ronaldo hanging in the air like Uriel advised joke at the Christmas party, it all adds up to a totally festive football show in association with Paddy Power. Listener, we've got a special show for you today. Thanks for joining us. I'm looking here at the beaming face of Christmas stocking filler provider, Tom Williams. Hello, James. Right, with your Do You Speak Football? Oh, my, there's a copy right in front of you. Yes, the, yes so there is. We got a, a letter from, well, I say we got a letter. We got a, a tweet. Here's me. Hello, Grandad. It's just the BBC broom cupboard or something. <laughs> so, yeah, no, there was a, a tweet from a listener. Hi, Alex. Uh, Alex, who I think is being a bit cheeky, says, could you make my day by getting Tom to pronounce the Polish phrases from Do You Speak Football? I'm going to give it one go. Um, Do you want to go now or later? I can go now. Give us one now and then we'll do them later. Okay, Um, how about ciasteczko, which translates as little cookie, uh, and that is a pass that creates a gilt-edged chance for a teammate. Oh, have a little cookie. Yeah. It's that time of year, isn't it? Duncan Alexander's also here. You've written a book as well, haven't you, Duncan? I have, yeah, still available. Brilliant. In places. Okay. What's it called? Uh, Outside the Box, a statistical history of the Premier League. Still apt and still available. Right. Fantastic. And joining us, all the way from Sweden via Sunderland, it's our old pal David Priest. Good morning. Good morning. I I haven't written a book, but not yet. Right, because you're going to have some stuff to fill. I've had at least four chapters this, this year. Right. Yeah. Because, um, you know, you've been up in near the Arctic Circle. Well, 400 miles from the Arctic Circle. That's but close, it's close enough. enough, yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, with, the... <laughs> <laughs> with Ostersund. Yeah. Yeah, where the situation is in the balance at the moment. At this moment in time, we're waiting back for uh, the results of the appeal uh, for... We've got our, t- our elite license taken away from us. Right. Uh, After the, the guy who'd funded the club was slung into jail for illegally using public funds? Well, he was uh, sentenced to three years, right. yes, but he's appealed that, and there's a retrial at the end of April, I think. Okay. So that's still up in the air as well. But right. it's uh, th- this case of the elite license, there's a certain criteria that you've got to adhere to to right. get your license to, to play in Alsvenskan. They weren't happy, though the Swedish FA weren't happy that we could uh, fulfil our fixtures next year so right. to avoid a Berry-type situation. So uh, we appealed that decision and we're just waiting back on the, the news now, which should come tomorrow. Right. But by the way, the new listeners... Uh, David went off very excitingly to Ostersunds, where you were goalkeeping coach. And despite uh, beating the drop this season in the Oldsfield scan, then the kind of the judges, because of that whole legal business, went, <laughs> uh, and uh, that's what we're waiting on at the moment. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the trial of Daniel Schimberg was something that's been hanging over the club for past 18 months. Yeah. Uh, just come to, uh, well, almost a conclusion, but obviously now that he's appealed it, it's, that's still all up the air as well. So it's... Um, it's it's been a up and down season. You could say that a real roller coaster. Right, dark days, but then I guess they all are up near the Arctic Circle. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. David, on your return, much like Charlton Heston, no doubt in that movie about the you know the apes and that you 
the crazy bastard has gone and blown everything up because literally it's all... I mean, Mourinho, did you hear he went to Spurs? And now Arsenal and Everton are about to bring in Mikel Arteta and apparently Carlo Ancelotti. We're hearing that Arteta might be confirmed by Friday, so it could be in place for the meeting of those two clubs this coming Saturday. Two massive appointments. Uh, Tom, given that they were both there as options, if you were running Arsenal, which would you have picked? I think given what the club needs, I'd be more inclined to take a gamble on someone like uh, Arteta. Right. Because Arsenal need a complete overhaul. And that is not something that Carlo Ancelotti has a great deal of recent experience of. I mean, obviously, Arteta is a punt. We know nothing about his... We know next to nothing about his credentials, ultimately. He's only ever been number two to Guardiola in his coaching career. Guardiola speaks enormously highly of him. Um, You know, clearly, he has a lot of responsibility at City. He was very close to getting the Arsenal job in 2018. But then you look at it and you think, well, either, you know, he's the guy they should have got in 2018, or he's the guy who was just a little bit less impressive than the worst Arsenal manager in uh, modern memory, Unai Emery. So there are two different ways of looking at that. But Which way yeah. do you look at it? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've read lots of great things about what a great coach Freddie Lundberg was and how he had a great relationship with all the young players and how he was, you know, took a leading role in the video analysis and how he was a, you know, a really sens- sensible appointment. And obviously there has been no manager, no new manager bounce whatsoever with Lundberg. I mean, Arteta's a very different example. He has really, you know, earned his spurs these last few years. But it, it is a big unknown because of his lack of experience as a number one. I think the counter to the... You know, he, he he worked alongside Pep, who's going to be good argument, is all the managers that worked alongside Alex Ferguson. You know, you had a lot of them who, who did really well as assistants and went off and forged their own careers. And, you know, Steve McLaren, Brian Kidd, Carlos Quiroz. Success in a bit, but they're never to the extent of Alex Ferguson. And that's the big thing, I think, is because the, the personality needed to be a number one. I think that um, even if you look on just a fierce value of, uh, of Lundberg and, uh, and Arteta, you know, you look at them and... You probably see, look at their characters, and you probably look at Arteta. I think, yeah, he looks studious. He, he looks like he's uh, got an intensity, and he looks like he's got the. Like I said, uh, he has got authority about him. Arsenal's board are obviously thinking that uh, he they're going to get sort of more, more or less a diet pep. Nice. Yeah, yeah, that works. Yeah, almost. Uh, and um, yeah, that's his influence is going to rub off on Arteta, and obviously you could see that. Yeah, it doesn't matter how thoughtful you are as a player in how much you think about the game. It still right. doesn't translate into being a, a good head coach. Or how manager. much you sat next to a good coach. But there is significant evidence, isn't there, that Arteta's played quite an active role in, in, in City's tactics? Yeah, I mean, from uh, what I've saw of uh, Man City's training, the, he's very involved in that. Uh, you know, Pep takes a little bit more of a backseat when he's around, and he's uh, he seem he's, he comes across as very authoritative. I mean, he's. Um, he, uh, I played against uh, Mikel a few times when he was at Rangers, and although he, he was very young then, he, he, he perhaps doesn't come across as the most. Uh, he's not a Tony Adams type, you know, of, of captain or, or character on the pitch, but he's obviously a deep thinker. And you know, listen to some of the Arsenal players that played alongside him and Everton players. They they always knew that he was going to be a coach. Right. He actually gave a uh, an interview to the Arsenal website in 2016 when he's still at the club, talking about his kind of view and philosophy as a manager in the future. Um, you know, he, he was clearly a player that's always wanted to go into management. You get those sort of players who are destined to do it. I mean, he did say in it that he would want his players to give 120% and he would give 100% as a manager. So I'm not <laughs> sure whether that's fair or mathematically sound. But 
Yeah, I think I think it's unfair for the Aubameyang family to claim that he's just another Lundberg in the sense that, you know, he he has put his time in on the on the coaching thing. And as Michael mentioned on Monday, you know, he um, Pep even let him choose the team and the tactics for one of the games against Arsenal. So, I mean, it might not work out, but I think it's a it's probably the the move they should have made when they got Emery in. So. Okay, but I th- also think that um, talk about Ancelotti. I think the probably the difference would be if either went into Arsenal was that. Ancelotti would probably have a more immediate effect. Right. I think Ancelotti can go in there and, and work with what he's got initially. And then beyond that, then then it's, that's up to him. Whereas you can see that Arteta will be very much like Pep. He'll, he'll have one way of doing things. Right. And the, the, the players will either get better at doing it or he'll get better players in. Right. With that in mind, how and as and when Ancelotti does arrive at Goodison, how well do you see that working out, David? With Big Duncan still in the kind of coaching setup, apparently everything I hear from uh, about Duncan Ferguson uh, has been positive uh, from what he's done in the background before. Uh, he's very popular. Again, that that might not, not not count for anything, but I think for for Ancelotti going in there, it, it's good to have somebody around that's that's respected and that uh, again has authority in the dressing room and, right. and that people respect. So you've got somebody, you've almost got the dressing room on board. So the Ferguson away. angle works, but what about Ancelotti as a fit for for Everton? <sighs> Yeah, I think exactly the same. I think it'll have the same effect. I mean, the effect that Duncan Ferguson had at at the moment has been emotional. It's been, you know, you've seen the comeback last night against Leicester. It was all built on sort of um, all the players being pumped up and and reacting off the manager and reacting off what he said at half-time. And and to be fair, it was a great atmosphere. You see, when uh, Leighton Baines' goal goes in, you know, considering... All the arguments about the Aston Villa and Liverpool game early, uh, the day before, it made it a real good cup tie because it was competitive. But Ancelotti, I think it's uh, like I said, it, it will have an immediate effect because he, he'll he'll work with what he's got and he'll be adaptive to that. I mean, it's, right. it's obviously a coup for Everton getting a manager of that renown. Um, you know, he brings his track record, the trophies he's won, you know, his personal charisma, and as you know, as David said, he's the sort of guy who will give the place a lift and. You know, makes Everton look like a big club, which is some. You know, Everton is a big club, and, and their fans want them to behave like a big club, and, and they're hiring a, hiring a big manager. But mm. you look at Ancelotti's career; he's never been in this situation before in his entire career. You know, I was looking wow. at his sort of track record before. You go right back to when he starts out at Reggiana, gets him promoted from Serie B straight onto Parma, into a Serie A title race, onto Juve Milan, winning trophies. Yes, he came in at Chelsea and picked up the pieces to an extent, but he's basically facing a relegation battle. We know that there's enough quality in that. Everton squad for them to drag themselves out of it, and the suspicion is that that's what they'll probably do. But like long term, I, I don't, I don't see where in Ancelotti's track record there is evidence of him being able to come into a club that has as many issues as Everton have and turn things around because he's he's never done it before. I mean, he has just left a club that play in blue and you know really revere the 1986-87 season. Big so. Port City as well. Exactly. Your so. point was better. Yeah. <laughs> but I, the only other thing is that you, we don't know. We're not privy to what he's been promised and told you know he might have been told next summer you know the purse strings and obviously Everton are moving to their you know it's a big week because they've get permission to start building their stadium you know that's going to be one of the most impressive stadiums in world football when it's built so I don't think it's as odd decision as it might first look okay in the short term the curious thing is of course that Arsenal and Everton face each other at Everton in their current ground uh, this Saturday lunchtime. We'll get your thoughts on that after this. Well, not had enough Arsenal and Everton chat yet, so let's have a quick 
look at the Saturday lunchtime meeting. Uh, this is a fixture which the Toffees have done pretty well in of late. Won two of the last three meetings. And, of course, under Big Dunk, they're playing with an intensity that is so sorely lacking in uh, Arsenal's efforts of late. Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a stark contrast uh, between the impacts that their respective interim managers have had. Duncan Ferguson has had the sort of impact that you would hope to have, and obviously, you know, his 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 character um, appears to have, you know, it seems to be being reflected by the team. There, okay, they'd lost on penalties to Leicester last night, but they're three games unbeaten inside 90 minutes, and there has been a Duncan Ferguson effect. And it, you know, it sounds as if you know, if it is Ancelotti who comes in, he's going to be be kept on the staff, which is clearly a positive. And then you look at Arsenal, who have not improved in any way since Freddie Lundberg came in, in a way that makes you realise how pronounced that malaise is. Um, I think if Arteta has been confirmed as Arsenal manager by the time this game takes place, Arsenal will go into it with a different state of mind. There's a new manager to impress, etc. In terms of the kind of you know the, the dynamics that the two clubs are on currently, with the positive impact that Duncan Ferguson's had, um, you, you'd fear for Arsenal if, if they can't get any sort of uplift going into this game. Right, uplift, Duncan. Possibly. I mean, the big issue for Arsenal is defending. They've gone 14 games without a clean sheet, which is their longest spell since dog licences were abolished in 1984. Not sure there's a connection, but we, you know, you can't rule it out. Something um, to do with Leeds? I'm but, not sure. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Everton do look like they're struggling, but they win this and they're only one point behind Arsenal. So, it, as we know, the the below sort of fifth and sixth is so compacted in the Premier League um, that a couple of good results can push you right up there. So... So yeah, I mean, I would, I'd imagine that even if Arteta comes in ahead of the game, that he's there's so much to, to sort out that it's going to be tricky. I, I know that uh, Big Dunk's coming to a bit, a bit of criticism for the way that they've played, that it's a bit basic and that uh, <clears throat> he, he's uh, the, the influences had, like I said before, has been has been emotional and rather than right. anything tactical. But it's worked for them. And mm. I think somewhere, if you're playing it somewhere like Goodison Park, it's one of the l- last few pl- uh, places where. It feels tight. Doesn't matter whether the pitch is the same size as every other pitch. It still feels tight, and I think you know the way that he's they've went after teams, and okay, they've been physical as well. It's one place where it will have a massive effect on the away team. Right. Luckily, Arsenal are a club with loads of character, so that shouldn't be an issue. That's the early kickoff then in game week or match week, as I believe it's termed, match week eighteen. Everton fresh, of course, from that midweek uh, midweek thriller in the what quarterfinals of yeah. the of the League Cup, which saw them drawing 2-2, Leighton Baines. Mm. Oh, my. Absolute scorcher. Mm. Sad to see probably the only footballer who's ever said he's liked Kasabian score that goal against Leicester, but then he missed the penalty. So Right. Well, Leicester going through to the semi-finals after that uh, victory on penalties, where they will be taking on Aston Villa, who, mm. were, who were involved in the kind of the big controversial game against the... The Liverpool side with the average age of 19. Yeah, 19 years and 182 days. The youngest team Liverpool ever put out, ever, ever, in the history of Liverpool. Wow. Now, um, a lot of people got quite upset about this. Because, yeah, I'm not sure why. Yeah, really. I'm not sure why. Did, it, David, do you know why, Tom? Yeah, well, I mean, I think... It's only the Carabao Cup, come on. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, the general consensus was that it was that they were being, like, uh, lambs to the slaughter. You know, right. it, it was like a humiliation. I see. When... I can only see it from their point of view and thinking that this is one be one of the best experiences that they could have at this stage in their development. You know, it's not a, it's not an under 18s under twenty one game. It's it's there's actually something at stake as a big crowd's live on TV and mm. it's the next step for a lot of those players. Two things from that game, I think. A, 
it was a lot closer than the scoreline suggests. Liverpool had more shots than Villa. The XG was about the same. You know, it wasn't like they were completely outclassed. So the, the scoreline was 5-0. 4-0 yeah. at half-time. Mm, the first time Liverpool let in four before half-time since that Stoke game, Steven Gerrard's last match. Um, they probably did better than, than that Liverpool team, to be fair. But and also, I saw a lot of people criticising Aston Villa players for celebrating the goals. Yeah. It's like, it's a quarter-final of a cup. I mean, you know, it's still, a goal's a goal. I, I keep saying this about, you know, talking in the summer about the uh, the American women's national team uh, against Thailand and people up in arms about them celebrating the goals. It's like, you've reached the pinnacle of a sport. You know, scoring goals at that level isn't easy to do. So if you get it, you, yeah. you celebrate, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, and, and plus it, Villa, you know, it wasn't Villa's first choice team. You know, the, the guys who were scoring goals were guys who needed goals. Jonathan Codgia comes in, gets a couple. Wesley comes on and, uh, and gets one right at the end, which would be a massive boost for his confidence. So, mm. you know, I, I yeah, I, I don't don't fully understand the. Criticism so it was now. actually Liverpool's young boys against the Codger, an old Codger. Yes, yeah. I believe that joke has been made. But yes, oh, indeed. is it? Oh. Anyway, that, that was um, so. And it was an experience for Liverpool, but a, a victory for. For the Villa side, who, as I say, will be taking on Leicester in the semi-final. The other side of that semi-final being an all-Manchester affair. City, who won 3-1 away at Oxford United. Oxford's equaliser was a bit special, wasn't it? Is that right? Yeah, OK. I mean, as a Wickham fan, I'd like to um, say thank you to the Manchester footballing community for, for beating Oxford and Colchester and preventing any fairy tale stories. What's your beef with either of those two? Excuse my ignorance of. Well, also sort of local-ish. Yeah. What about Colchester? Miles. That's away. a long, long story. I don't think the pods, you know, got space today for that story. But it's Can you a, sum it up in a sentence. Nineteen eighties beef that that carried on into the nineteen nineties and beyond. Okay. What, what does it centre around? Was there a, a transfer it, it, or? A... No, initially in a couple of FA Cup ties in the eighties. Right. And then we were both going for promotion from the conference in the early nineties, and they had a very abrasive manager called Roy McDonough, uh-huh. and we had Martin O'Neill, and they. Roy. And they had a lot of uh, uh, angst between them. Crikey! All right. Well, so anyway, Man United did Colchester three nil, and they'll face each other, Man City and Man United. And so when are the semi-finals, Tom? Uh, sometime in 2020, I believe. Brilliant. Early January. January, yeah. January, yeah two-legged. Right. Worth um, uh, pointing out, Oxford had 18 shots in the game against City, which is apparently more shots than any other team that has faced City in the Pep Guardiola era. So, Good Lord. So a patronising pat on the head. <laughs> I mean, to that. be fair to Oxford, they are playing you know really good football and they did take the game to City and you know it, it was good, I guess. But yeah. Right. I mean, Excellent. Yeah, City. The other thing that's strange is obviously Guardiola loves the League Cup. He always plays a really strong team. You know, that was it was a little bit of a of a mixture, but he still had Sterling out there and, and various others. So, you know, three one is, is is a pretty good result for Oxford. Right. Did you follow up your League Cup uh, viewing with a, a little bit of Club World Cup? Preceded it with that, yeah. Oh yeah, because it was at five fifteen, wasn't mm. it? Curiously, what did you make of because that this whole business of leaving the kids behind as cannon fodder while the well, the seniors went off for uh, for a bit of glory hunting in, in, in the desert. Yeah. Almost went spectacularly wrong yeah, at the well, first step. I don't think anyone expected Jordan Henderson to play centre-half to start with. Although they did all right. But yeah, I mean, it was a very much a kind of mix-and-match team. I think Liverpool thought they would would canter to a win. They took an early lead, but within three minutes, Montreux were level. And they really huffed and puffed. And they had to do... You know, they had to end up bringing on Firmino, Mane and, and Trent Alexander-Arnold, which is, to be fair, not a bad three subs to bring right, on. Right, but the whole notion was that it was effectively going to be a bit of a winter holiday camp until the final, I think, for, yeah. for Jurgen Klopp. Alisson proving absolutely decisive 
in that game as as, as Monterey sought the, the the winner in the second half. Uh, Joey saying, could you ask David about Alison Becker and how he's always in the right place and makes great saves without making air quotes world class saves? Is it just ruthless efficiency? What it is, it's just great decision making. And he, because he puts himself in this position, uh, the right position most of the time, apart from when he got sent off a couple of weeks ago. But that, that makes his job a lot easier. He's not having to make spectacular saves because he's in that right position all the time. You know, whether it's uh, deep in his goal for shots uh, from long distance, or whether it's from uh, you know his high position for for long balls coming through, he's, he's always talking throughout the game. It's one of the big. Uh, the big part of his game that uh, people noticed first when he came to Liverpool, not the fact that it was anything spectacular about his shot stopping or his distribution, but the fact that he's so vocal uh, throughout, the, not just when the, you know, when he's defending his area, when the ball's up the end, he's always talking all the time and it keeps himself involved in the game. When you see spectacular saves, David, is it a bit a bit like when, when some clever folk see a tackle, and a spectacular tackle, and they go, well, that's the defender who was out of position in the first place. They shouldn't have to be making that last ditch tackle is it, is it a little bit the same thing with those flying flying leaps palms outstretched yeah it is more often when you see a, a keeper who's making these saves on a regular basis and right. you think that's well it, it it should be look a lot it looks a lot more difficult than what it should be I see Flamengo up next in the final can I say my favourite moment in the Liverpool game was the clash between Jurgen Klopp and Monterey coach uh, Antonio mm. Mohamed, which is captured in a very amusing photo that I have retweeted, if anyone has not yet seen it. I th- Antonio Mohamed uh, reacted to a tackle by a Liverpool player by a demanding a yellow card. Mm. And in the second photo yeah. after um, the Monterey coach does that, you can see Klopp mocking his action and pulling this sort of disdainful face which well, I enjoyed in a nice link as you've pointed out before in Australia what do they call yellow cards a slice of cheese Monterey here Oof, we go Monterey Jack oh, look at that <laughs> seamless so with Liverpool safely through to that clash with Flamengo but missing out on their fixture with West Ham this weekend in the Premier League a big opportunity for the chasing pack aka Leicester and Man City to close the gap curiously enough they face each other. They face each other at the Etihad on Saturday night. Now, I'm no expert, but smart, canny defenders, lightning quick on the break. Do Leicester pretty much look like the blueprint of a team that could really cause City problems, especially given their recent wobbles? Yeah, yeah potentially. Um, obviously, it was Leicester who gave City the biggest problems in the title running last year with that game at, at the Etihad uh, that was settled by that phenomenal Vincent Company goal. Yeah. Getting closer. Um, but yeah, and, and already in that game, you could see uh, that, that Brendan Rodgers had had, had an impact. Um, as you say, they're a team who defend very well. They've got an excellent defensive record. They press very intelligently um, and they have pace on the counter-attack, uh, you know, most notably in Jamie Vardy, who's in fantastic form. So, yeah, it is, it's a real test for City. Um, and I think, you know, Leicester dropping points last weekend against Norwich might actually work in their favour. And if they were going into this off the back of that unbroken winning run, maybe there'd be a tiny little bit of complacency but there is a need for a reaction there um, City obviously coming into it off the back of a very easy win over Arsenal and that win over Oxford United which makes you think that they've probably got the defeat against Man United out of their systems but they've, they've not looked absolutely regal this season and I, I think Leicester could cause some problems 
Also, I've seen a little bit of talk about uh, Brendan Rodgers perhaps taking over from uh, Pep Guardiola if he was to leave. So I think that Brendan will probably see this as a little bit of an audition. Tom, I believe I'm right in saying you were present at the first ever meeting between Pep and Brendan as managers. I think it was the first ever meeting. Basically, it was right at the start of Guardiola's first season. Um, They started with 10 wins in all competitions, were looking pretty serene, went up to Celtic Park in the Champions League and got a bit of a chasing, ending up drawing 3-3 in a really entertaining game. But Guardiola was full of praise afterwards for Celtic and and they were the first team in that run who'd really had a go at City. Um, So, you know, a little bit of of history there. Interesting. How much that'll be weighing on Pep's mind as he goes into this. And not just that, but how much is he going to be disrupted by... Losing the fellow who's been sat next to him all these all these seasons on the bench at the Etihad. Obviously, Pep's not a man who's particularly fixated on detail or routine or anything, so he'll probably just laugh that off. Yeah, he'll just shrug it off and go, off. what will be, will be. I mean, one thing to look out for in this game is um, it features uh, two of the three players in Premier League history to have won the most penalties um, in the history of it. So you've got... So, OK, this is fun. Uh, so three players have won the most penalties. 16 penalties in their career, which is the most. In the history of the Premier League. Well, David? Jamie Vardy's won. Correct. Uh, Raheem Sterling? Correct. Okay. So they're the two from this game. And then the third, also a current player. Still playing? Yep. Will Sahar? Correct. Yes. Remarkable. Remarkable. Excellent. Okay, who are Liverpool going to be rooting for? I would say Liverpool, it would suit them to be a draw, I think, or a Leicester win. I know that that would push Leicester closer to Liverpool, but the fact that City would then be so far behind Liverpool and Liverpool having a game in hand. So you're saying if you're Liverpool, you you don't take Leicester seriously, but, but, but City still represent a threat. I think the fear that City can go on one of those trademark, you know, 19-game winning runs is, is there. Right. So I would, if I was a Liverpool employee, I'd prefer Even Leicester. though Liverpool have to face Leicester... At the King Power on Boxing Day. Yep. Well, we'll see. Saturday tea time for that game. A battle for second place. The fight for fourth looks pretty interesting, uh, David, this weekend. Because, uh, as you'll have spotted, Spurs, who looked dead and buried in terms of Champions League places when Mourinho took over, 12 points back, are now just three points behind the current fourth place side, Chelsea, who they will be hosting this weekend, they could go above them. It's a lighter side to Joe's, isn't it? And a welcome, a welcome it does change. Seem happy. It is quite a nice throwback to the to the mid two thousands. And on that front, if you remember, in his very first season in the Premier League, mm. he coined the phrase that everyone uses now: "Part, part of the, the bus. bus." When Chelsea played Tottenham, and Tottenham came to Stamford Bridge, and, and they got a nil nil, and he and he wasn't happy. Um, and the one thing you can say is that Lampard is his kind of footballing son in many ways, but I don't think Lampard's going to set up like that in this game. And I think it could be quite open and should be a pretty good match. A relevant stat is that Jose Mourinho has won 12 and lost none of his 13 previous home games against sides that he has previously managed, Ooh. which includes three wins against Chelsea. Crikey. So history is on his side. And also just looking at the form of both teams, Spurs have won four of five in the league uh, since Mourinho came in and got that last gasp winner against Wolves last weekend with the Jan Vertonghen header. Chelsea moving in completely the opposite direction. Four defeats in the last five. Um, they lost at home to Bournemouth last time out. So, yeah, you feel like the momentum is with Spurs. And I, you suspect that it's the sort of match that Mourinho will really relish as well. 
everyone remembers that time you've had that peach of an accumulator looking good only for... Oh, and the keeper's let it slip through his legs in the 94th minute. Or the right back has to pull on the gloves and face a penalty. Or Man United have again conceded a late equaliser. But with Paddy Power's Acker Cracker, you get a free bet if one leg of your fourfold plus Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Minimum odds of 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeCumbleAware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. All right. Earlier on Sunday afternoon, Tom Williams visit Watford with predictably hilarious consequences. It's Watford against Man United. That's the fiction. Sounds a bit like I'm, I'm going to play Watford myself. That would be good. Yeah. I would, it's I'm, not actually, sure I, I'm not sure I'd fancy my chances. It's scheduled to be Man United, the visiting mm. side. Uh, you're going to be watching from the press box at Vicarage Road. Apart from the pre-game Tannoy performance, uh, what are you most looking forward to? <laughs> I am looking forward to seeing how Watford fare in what will be Nigel Pearson's first home game as manager. Yeah. Um, there were signs of improvement, I thought, uh, at Anfield last weekend. Um, Watford created quite a lot of chances, um, You know, should have scored at least one of those chances and, and made Liverpool work quite hard for their 2-0 win. Um, Nigel Pearson was pretty positive about the way that Watford had played, said he saw more positives than negatives. And I th- it's the sort of fixture as well that Manchester United have struggled with this season. Um, you know, they've done very well in the big games. You know, they're coming off that run of back-to-back wins over Spurs and, and Man City. But if you look at the, the teams that have beaten them in the Premier League this season, not just the teams that they've lost points to, but Crystal Palace, West Ham, Newcastle and Bournemouth. Um, and it kind of feels like a bit of a free hit for Watford in that... Um, you know, there won't be huge expectation that they get something from this game. They can play as defensively as they want. They can hit Manchester United on the break. And we know that United, for all the pace they have and for all the threat that they pose themselves on the counter-attack, they do struggle um, against low blocks uh, when they can't just rely on that explosive pace. So I, I think it'll be an awkward afternoon for United and I, I can see Watford getting a result. All right. I mean, obviously, we know how bad Watford's finishing has been this season. That mm-hmm. has been their main issue. You know, this, they are creating good chances, just not finishing them. They are facing David De Gea, who, you know, he's only kept as many clean sheets this season as David Martin at West Ham. He's obviously only just come into the West Ham team. Right. Um, and half as many as Ben Foster in the opponent's goal this weekend. So... Interesting. So, I mean, I don't know what David's opinion is. I mean, obviously, I think De Gea was a little bit unlucky against Everton, but generally he hasn't... You know, he obviously signed that massive new contract in the summer based basically on two seasons ago. I don't think he's probably, you know, living up to those standards currently. No, but I also think that a goalkeeper's uh, performances depend on what's in front of them as well. And there's been lots of chopping and changing. There's just been a lot of, they haven't been again another team that haven't been solid at the back, and and still having to play people like Ashley Young at fullback. So it's yeah that can all contribute to it. I don't think he's playing badly, particularly. Okay, but um, it, it is. I think it is one year to the day. Somebody's just. Uh, Put a question in saying that is it one year till uh, since uh, Olegoni Solskjaer came yes. to the club and ask him whether they're, they're in a better position now, you know, not than so, they were under Mourinho. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what do you think? Well, I, th- I still don't think it's a long term answer for them. I sp- I've spoken to a, a lot of people in in Norwegian football, and without question, every single one of them was. So, so, so stunned actually that he was uh, that he was given the opportunity seeing as that okay he won the, the league with Molde and Molde romped the, the Norwegian league this year um, 
with I think it was the youth team manager took over. All right, and did actually better than an Oli. Yeah, and, and when he when he taken over at Manchester United, I think the word was that he, he possibly could be getting the sack from uh, from Mulder. They're quite happy that, to receive nine million pounds from right. Man United for somebody who wasn't actually doing a great job at the time. They were losing a lot of goals and uh, drawing games from a lot of winning positions when they were two and three goals up. Right. Hornets have only had one win since Man United, Tom, since 1986. That was in 2016 when it was Mourinho against Walter Mazzari. Finished 3-1 to Watford. Pearson, for his part, you recall, did mastermind a 5-3 win against United when he was uh, when he was at Leicester. A, one of the best games in Premier League in the 2010s, I would say. That was Van Hal. Uh, yeah, with that lovely Di Maria goal. It's actually, it was the first time in Premier League history that Man United had ever been two goals up in a game and lost. So, you know, again, we know about the mysterious magic of Pearson and Leicester and everything, but that was a, a first glimpse at it, I think. And a first real glimpse of Jamie Vardy doing damage against a top defence. Uh, and a friend of mine, who I will not name, predicted confidently after the game that Jamie Vardy would never score another goal in the Premier League after that. Brilliant. He's four off a hundred, so he there was sort go. of right, but mainly wrong. Watford have Nigel's tactical nous on the sideline, but they don't really have a Vardy-esque figure. Do so? Does anybody else share Tom's confidence in the in bottom of the table Hornets getting something here? Tom, you're allowed to. Oh, am I allowed to yeah. share my own confidence? Yeah. Well, yeah, I've just just to reiterate. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that Watford are going to win this, but I think they will. They will frustrate United. Uh, right. And you yes. said they get a result. That's we all heard. No, yeah, result, a result, don't, don't a result also now. means a draw. That's certainly given, true. Given the sort of, you know, the Manchester United um, fans, the if you see Tom at Vicarage Road on Sunday, uh, just to reiterate, he did say Watford would win. <laughs> there you go. I did not. Not <laughs> the, the only contest that uh, United are currently engaged in, because there's also the race to sign Erling Haaland, which the English press are now putting them very much as, as favourites, almost a done deal for the Red Bull Salzburg goal machine. That's what they say. Sign him for £76 because that very affordable buyout clause only applies to the unconnected RB Leipzig and then loan him back to Salzburg. That's what they say. In Germany, as you may have heard on Tuesday's show, uh, really, really confident that uh, it's actually more likely to be Dortmund or possibly Leipzig themselves where he'll be heading. Duncan, you're nodding sagely as if you want to... Well, just £76 million for someone who's only scored goals in the Austrian League. I mean, and the Champions and the League. And the Champions League. the group stage. I mean... Not, really? Not over-convinced. And also, how can he play for Manchester United? The club of Roy Keane and his, you know... Well, that's true. He's a Leeds just, fan. Just to come in on, on Dortmund's reported interest, I was at Dortmund a few weeks ago and interviewed their chief scout, Marcus Pilava, and mm. he was saying that a problem Dortmund have is that their modus operandi of signing promising young players relatively cheaply and then selling them on at a massive profit is, is now becoming more and more difficult to um, continue with because that's now what every club is doing. And if they were to have to spend sort of 70 million odd to sign Haaland, that would absolutely smash their transfer record. Perhaps they're prepared to do that. I mean, it would look like a good fit given the profile of players that they generally tend to sign, but right. I'm, I'm not sure it's a given that they have that sort of money floating around. Okay, I, I know that Duncan was joking about him not signing for Manu because of Roy Keane, but when he played for Brian in Norway, right. Viking Stavanger came in for, for Erling and uh, they were a local rival to Brian and his father wouldn't allow him to sign for Viking and that's why he signed for Mulder. Interesting. So, the, salty the, so there could be something in that. Yeah. Mm. 
Speaking of Dortmund, actually, uh, we should uh, have a quick word about what uh, happened with them and one or two of the other key continental matchups. Some crazy action and, and a particularly spectacular header from uh, Ronaldo coming up after this. Tutti nella metà campo della Sampdoria, chiusa come mai, pallone per Alex Sandro, il cross sul secondo palo, e arriva il colpo di testa di Cristiano Ronaldo, la rete della Juventus, viewers in Italy and worldwide, thrilled at the sight of a very well hung Cristiano Ronaldo, absolutely spectacular leap to secure three points for Juventus in their clash with Sampdoria, putting them three points clear at the top of Serie A again, but... That Ronaldo leap for a player who a lot of people had started to think, well, heading for the glue factory, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? I mean, a goal that joins his own personal canon of extraordinary headers. It's not the first time that he's climbed like that at the back post. You think about the winning goal, 2011 Copa del Rey final against Barcelona. There was that goal against Man United where he basically jumped over Patrice Evra's head. I don't think he's ever hung in the air in quite that way. This is the thing. So the height is extraordinary. Uh, He reached 2.56 metres, which is 8 foot 3 off the ground. But it's, it's the hang time because he's up there twice as long as the two Sampdoria players, Muru and Colli. He actually slightly mistimes it in the sense that when his head makes connection with the ball, he's on the way down. Generally speaking, you want to be at the height of your leap when you when you make the connection with a header. But his ability to hang like that means that he's able to sort of control his body shape. Right. And even though he's just starting to fall, he, he gets his head on it. And yeah, absolutely incredible goal. I mean, Paolo Dybala, who'd put Juve ahead with an absolutely fantastic goal, ends up getting completely overshadowed because it was just such a freakishly good header. And, right. you know, underlining Ronaldo's reputation as one of the greatest headers of a football that the game has ever seen it's a great one for any uh, anybody trying to learn how to head a football because you're right what you said about him mistiming the header and normally in even at every level in football players tend to try and throw their ball uh, throw their head at the ball to try Mm. and uh, generate more power if you see him he doesn't move his head at all he allows the the ball just to hit his head so if he if he did try and sort of throw his head at it he probably wouldn't miss time even more and it would go off a different angle but he just allows it to hit his head and go straight back in the other direction he just aligns his body in mid-air kind of horizontally and then sticks the landing which is the really extraordinary thing that's exactly what I was going to say there that's the most impressive thing about it that he doesn't fall the ground he yeah. just he sticks the land and then just runs off incredible yeah it is yeah anyway Juve heading off to Saudi Arabia hurrah for Sunday's Super Cup uh, Italian Super Cup with uh, Lazio who themselves had a pretty exciting game midweek Monday night right Monday night they're taking on Cagliari who they are the sort of surprise top four rivals for Lazio and the, and the other Champions League contenders and Cagliari go a goal up early and 90 minutes gone, they're about to seal a fat three points, but two goals after the 90 for Lazio see them briefly pull to just three points off the top of City. Yeah, Juve's subsequent win has moved them now three points. 97-29 was the time of the Lazio winner. 97 minutes and 29 seconds. Pretty late. And it was another towering header, actually, as it, as, as it goes from Casado. Echoes of that. Arsenal-Liverpool game from a few years back when Kenny Dalglish was at Liverpool which had, what was it, a 98th minute? Van Persie scored a penalty after about 98 and then Dirk Cow scored one after, I think, 101 minutes which is the latest goal in a 90-minute game in the Premier League. Yeah, and Kenny Dalglish turned to Arsene Wenger and sort of made a joke about, you know, what are the odds? And Wenger 
obviously said something back that suggested he wasn't really happy with the way things had uh, had <laughs> transpired, and Dalglish could very obviously be, be seen telling Wenger to piss off, right, uh, in his face, which was enjoyable, glorious, was minor touchline. Piss off in his face. Piss off. Oh, I mean, you know, I see. In so many words, there's a comma there. There is a comma. Right. Touchline spats are very much your thing, aren't they, Tom? I enjoy a touchline spat as much as as much as the next man. There was a terrific one in the Argentinian lower leagues. Oh, um, that someone posted right. on Twitter last yeah. night a sort of incredible knee high studs up challenge uh, that provoked a, a proper melee. Obviously, right. in, in scenes that no one likes to see. Indeed not. Elsewhere in Europe. The Bundesliga, the incredible title race continues there. Two of the title contenders uh, facing each other on Tuesday. Spurs' Champions League opponents, RB Leipzig, uh, were in Dortmund against Borussia. Borussia Dortmund raced to a two-goal lead, uh, then gifted two goals to their opponents as the second half got underway. Then Sancho put them back in front, and then they and then Leipzig realised it finished 3-3, but it was terrifically exciting. Sancho went off, uh, he hobbled off, so I'm not quite sure how serious that is, but he scored for the seventh game in a row and got an assist, and that was all very exciting. A couple of big goalie blunders in that one. Yeah. Peter Galaxy of Leipzig sort of diving out of the way of Julian Weigel's opener for Dortmund, and then Roman Berkey streaming from his goal line to head the ball away and then completely cocking it up and heading it straight to Timo Werner. Which is not what you want to do. Not what you want to do. Not especially. Uh, That meant uh, that with Leipzig dropping points, Borussia Mönchengladbach moved back level with them atop the Bundesliga. You've got five teams in five points uh, there. The two leaders and then four points behind them, Bayern and Dortmund. And a point behind them, hello, Schalke, managed by David Wagner of Huddersfield fame. Bayern, of course, will be facing Chelsea in the uh, last 16 of the Champions League. They had a 3-1 over another of the early frontrunners, Freiburg. We've got uh, J-Deep asking, uh, how good is the Canadian sensation Alfonso Davis at the moment? Does he have the tools to be the best left-back on the planet? I think you saw this game, David, did you? Yeah, I did. Um, Freiburg didn't get what they deserved out of the game. Um, Some... some Great chances for them to, to, to win the game at, at 1-1, especially late on in the game. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Alfonso Davis setting their first goal up with a, a great one forward. And um, and young 18-year-old uh, debutant, uh, Joshua Zerke okay. uh, from Holland, scored the, the second goal, which which would have been the win if um, Nabry hadn't scored the third goal. But it was, uh, it was a yeah, tough going for Freiburg simply because they, they deserve more of a game. All right. I interviewed Alfonso Davies about oh, a year you? ago, and he's very nice. It's surprising to see him playing left-back at Bayern because he yeah. is a winger by trade, but I think that's just a sign of how attack-minded modern full-backs are. Um, but yeah, I mean, possibly already the best Canadian football player in history. Um, obviously, he's still quite young. But Better than Ian Hume? Oh, OK, now you mention Ian Hume. Better than Paul Pescasolido? Mm, touch and go. Frank Yallop? Ooh, Frank Yallop's a good shout. But he's, he's right up there. Craig Forrest? Julia Hoylet? Yeah, he's one. Brilliant. And that one, listener, you're right. Good. Uh, also taking place... <laughs> Owen Hargreaves. Oh, yeah, that's a shout. He might take it, to be fair to Owen. Don't he's, you think? He's, 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 he's English, though, isn't he? He's as English, is as, they, he's as, English as a pork pie... As a maple syrup. And some pork privately pie. held racist views. <laughs> Crikey. Sorry, that was a bit dark, wasn't it? That did go... Let's move on to the Classico, <laughs> yes. uh, which was held eventually mm. this week. you recall that it had been postponed from October because of the threat of unrest on the streets of... Barcelona, and, well, 
Nil-nil it finished. Yeah, first one to finish nil-nil since Finding Nemo came out in 2002. So that's right. a long time ago. Um, and yeah, it was, it was Madrid dominated the first half. I'd it say. was a match to forget, you know, <laughs> I, you know, appropriately well, enough. Yeah, it was. A, it wasn't a classic, oh, but it was reasonable. And I mean, Madrid, you know, would be happy with that point, and they they played pretty well. They had twelve shots for half time, right? Which is pretty rare. Well, well so rare, in fact, it's the first time that has ever happened in a Clasico since Opta invented statistics in two thousand and two three. Wow. Sorry, Duncan. But I didn't want to point that out, but yeah, you're right. I pointed it out <laughs> for Excellent. you. And Andrew Fatty became the youngest player to uh, play in a uh, Classico, beating Bojan's record. So I don't know whether he's going to end up at Stoke as well, but we'll find out. And just to bring those stats full circle, Ansu Fati was a month old the last time the Classico finished goalless. He was born in October 2002. Incredible. Tom, just while we're on the subject of the continent, anything happening in France we should know about? Um, so we had Coupe de la Ligue, uh, oh, yeah. round of 16. The last fixtures. ever edition of the Coupe the de la Ligue. The last ever edition of the Coupe de la Ligue. Uh, PSG are through the quarterfinals, no surprise there. 4-1 win at Le Mans. We'll uh, miss those. We'll we, miss fixtures like We that. will miss yeah. fixtures like that. Uh, Lyon got a, a timely win, uh, 4-1 against Toulouse. Lyon have had a bit of a rough time, a bit of late. Lost 1-0 at Rennes last weekend and lost both Captain Memphis Depay and major summer signing Jeff Wren Adelaide to serious knee injuries. Uh, also, we're flagging up Lille winning 3 0 at Monaco, whose coach Leonardo Jardim is now under a bit of pressure. Again? Because, again. So they sacked him at a cost of something like 8 million euros, replaced him with Thierry Henry, and then the owner, Dmitry Rubilovlev, decided that that had been a mistake. So they sacked Henry. Right brought uh, Jardim back. He yeah. managed to steer them away from relegation, but they've not really improved all that much. They spent a shed load of money in the summer mm. um, and are still not very good. Uh, so he is, yeah, he's, he's not looking... He's uh, facing some tough choices. Great. Win or get another fat payoff? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. It is a tricky and one. And with Christmas approaching. Indeed. <laughs> it doesn't help. Alrighty. Excellent. That's the continent. After this, we'll run up a bit more of the Premier League games that await us this weekend. Who's excited for the first ever meeting in the top flight of Brighton and Sheffield United? Yes. Everyone. Ooh, yep. Everyone is. It's happening. Uh, it is happening Saturday at three o'clock. This is going to be an interesting tactical clash mm. between Chris Wilder uh, for the Blades and former Ostersons manager Graham Potter. Hey, David? Very much so. And I think this will be the, um, uh, a match between the two people who will be the next England manager. Really? After Southgate, yeah. Okay. In which Especially order? if you call Graham Potter. I d- definitely think Graham Potter will be England manager one day. Okay. No, no question. I think he's got a lot, a lot more work to do uh, in club football first. But I right. think that uh, definitely uh, one for, for England. He's, he's, I mean, Dan Ashworth, for, who's from the FA, who recruited him at Brighton, he, he fits the the template down the ground that, that's why he's brought in there at Brighton in the first place but certainly for somebody who's um, for the way that England want to play he's uh, I mean I've not seen um, Gareth Southgate coach but I, I'd, take, I'd say that Graham was a far better coach Who's your money on for this? Brighton, Sheffield United Sheffield United with that incredible record away from home but Brighton David what do you think? It's a tough one I think that um, one person who's integral the way that Brighton plays Adam Webster I think he's, uh, you know, he, he had a couple of sort of ricks at the start at the start of the season where he was just bed- bedding into the side. But he's uh, he's very much uh, the way the, the type of centre half that they want at the club. Uh, I think 
Dunks adapted quite well. You see that Duffy is probably one that the the one that's had more trouble on the ball, and that's why he's sitting on the bench. Right. But again, it's a it's a formidable centre half pair, and I think that. Yeah, I mean, just to back it up, obviously we've seen Matt Ryan be probably one of the most progressive keepers in the league this season. Brighton have got a higher pass completion rate this season than Manchester United, which is not something that happened last season. Um, and yeah, I mean, we saw in Crystal pa- against Crystal Palace on Monday. I mean, they dominated that game utterly for seventy minutes. They should have been two, three up. Um, but then they do have this propensity to, you know, throw away leads a little bit. So it, it could go either way this game. I mean, Sheffield United, if they don't lose, are going to be the first newly promoted team to avoid defeat in their first nine away games since Burnley back in 1947-48. So it's, it's pretty unprecedented what, what Sheffield United are doing. So, I mean, I'm really looking forward to this game. It's, it's a, an example of how two unfashionable teams, if you appoint the right managers, um, can become really effective outfits. Very nice. Palace, who were held to that 1-1 draw at Southampton Park on Monday, will be visiting Newcastle. We should give a bit of love to Wilfred Zaha for his uh, equaliser. Yeah. yeah, after Neil Mopay's or Mopai. Is it Mopai or Mopai? Mopai's opener for the Seagulls. It was a bit special, wasn't it? Yes, I mean it looked unlikely as we were saying, but he uh, he lashed at home and he's got a particularly good record against Brighton. I mean he's already adored by the Palace fans, but that that will obviously help as well. Um, yeah, Newcastle away again, very tr- tricky to call. I mean, first time Palace have played two Premier League games in a row against other teams who have nicknames with birds in them. Avian derbies. Uh, yeah, so they've obviously played the Seagulls on Monday. Yes. Now they're playing the Magpies. Haven't done that two in a row in the Premier League since 1995. Right. Speaking of which, can I just say my favourite goal celebration all season has been mm. Jamie Vardy doing the sort of like mock eagle after yeah. scoring at Selhurst Park. I don't know why, but it was, I, it was just, quite elegant, wasn't it? It was quite elegant. It was just I don't know. It was because you couldn't understand what he was doing, and it was like, oh, he's he's doing an e- he's doing like a yeah. like a rubbish eagle, and right. I, I enjoyed that immensely. Well, but perhaps we'll see Andy Carroll essaying something similar, or perhaps we won't. This time around, uh, no uh, Sam Maxima for uh, Newcastle. Not sure what the status of Almiron is or John Joe Shelby. It could be a magnificent Benteke Andy Carroll goal off, though, couldn't it? I pointed out this week Christian Benteke is the only player in Premier League history to have scored on Halloween, Bonfire Night, Boxing Day, New Year's Day, and his own birthday. So he gets criticism for not scoring, but you know when the when it's a big day. Brackets. This isn't a big day. <laughs> close brackets. He uh, he can still come up with the goods. Magnificent. That sounds dramatic, but possibly the game of the weekend, would you say, Tom? Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with that. Is coming up Saturday mid-afternoon as Villa take on Saints. Why is this one so important? Well, you look at the table and Villa and, and Southampton sit either side of the relegation zone line, both on 15 points uh, and both in, in similar runs of form uh, in that Villa... Looked like they turned a corner, um, 2-0 win at home to Newcastle and then a, a more than creditable 2-2 draw at Man United. They've lost their last three uh, and Southampton, meanwhile, um, had those back-to-back wins over Watford and Norwich, two other relegation candidates, but they've lost their last two. Um, so, yeah, a really big game. Uh, and I think if, if either team can get a win from here, it'll be uh, a serious boost. You look at Villa's uh, forthcoming fixtures after this, they're home to Norwich, home yep. to Watford, the two teams who Southampton have just beaten. Um, so that it's certainly going to be a, a crucial run of games for them. Absolutely huge. Have you, I've not seen a lot of Southampton this season, to be honest, but uh, 
that seems like a huge difference to, uh, to the way that they play now than they did when uh, Hassan Huttle first came in and the big impact he had. You know, high intensity, really, uh, you know, high pressing as well. And they just seem to have lost that a little bit. Yeah, they. Uh, lots of Hanson fans have, have obviously noticed, but I think they've become almost very reactive now. You know, they, it's almost like they're, they're more worried about losing than they are trying to win games um, and I think obviously the 9-0 defeat to Leicester has left a lot of mental scars as well so um, like Tom said they did look like they'd improved I mean Southampton's big issue like Watford is that they actually reasonably creative they just never score other than Danny Ings um, Villa are the reverse you know, Villa not really many problems going forward but their defence is, is really shaky If Shane Long would finish well, indeed. I mean, that could very much be his epitaph, couldn't it? I mean, he has scored the quickest Premier Which League goal. ironic, because by then he would have he finished. He would have done, hey. uh, Norwich are up against Wolves. Their first meeting in the top flight since, Duncan. CDs were invented or something. Go on. You'll have uh, something like that. Go on, Duncan. Go on. Go on. No, go on. Give one us one. Go on. New Year's Eve, 1983. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, hang on. Yeah. Sorry. That was my first ever New Year's Eve. So there's that. It's that... Is, is that right? Tom? I was born three months earlier. I okay. remember it well. Do you? I think wildly overrated thing, New Year's Eve. Mm. I mean, particularly when you're three months old, let me tell you. Yeah. I can't even get a drink. Probably better. Probably better, actually, yeah. Uh, also on the fixture list this weekend, David, is Bournemouth Burnley. Eddie Howe Derby. It is. It is, yeah. It so is. It's almost like the reverse of Brighton, Sheffield United. It's a South Coast team versus a Northern team right. who, who at their ta- at points in the last few seasons have had the reputation that Brighton and Sheffield United have of, of you know tearing up the league a little bit. But they've both Which Bournemouth, both Bournemouth and Burnley have, have had good seasons recently. Mm. But they've both sort of stagnated a little bit. Of course, Eddie Howe's brief uh, Burnley dalliance is something that Bournemouth fans still sing about in the song that they sing about him, which contains the memorable couplet, he went to Burnley and then he came back. (laughs) How does the rest of it go, Tom? Just in case I want to sing it. Uh, Something, it's one of those, someone, it's Eddie had a dream, something football team. Right. They started off on, oh no, Eddie had a dream at minus 17, because they were on minus 17 points because of their financial issues. Yep. He went to Burnley and then he came back. Eddie had a dream on minus 17. We had no money, so we signed players on loan. We played from the back with pace and attack. He went to Burnley and then he came back. Well, that's very nice then, isn't it? What a payoff. Brilliant. Hey, that brings us to the end of this week's fixtures because we're one down because Liverpool West Ham. So, before we do anything else, like, get some of your excellent uh, tweets and uh, discuss other matters. Let's check in with producer Ben and Paddy Power. Hello, listeners. It's producer Ben. Hope you've enjoyed listening to the show as much as I've enjoyed putting it together. No, really, the pleasure is all mine. OK, Lee Price is on the line from Paddy Power. Lee, let's look ahead to some of the biggies this weekend in the Premier League. First up, it's Man City versus Leicester in the battle for second place. What's going to happen here? Yeah, definitely the headline clash in a day full of difficult-to-call fixtures. But our traders are confident. They've gone 1-3 to three that Manchester City win this. They are at home, after all. They are the reigning champions, and they are pretty good. 
but so too are Leicester, and that's why I was surprised by the Foxes' price. They're thirteen to two to get a win here. It's four to one to be a draw. But if, like me, you're a little bit sceptical about Man City's chances here, maybe double chance is the way to go. That means you're betting on Leicester not to lose, so them to win or draw, and we price that at two to one. And the fight for fourth is Spurs versus Chelsea. Give us some numbers, please. Yeah, this is so tight. Tottenham are thirteen to ten to get the win, which is an implied probability of forty-three and a half percent chance. While Chelsea are fifteen to eight, and there's a lot of numbers being thrown at you there, but that's a thirty-four point eight percent chance of getting the win. The draw's thirteen to five. We're really sitting on the fence here. All I know is it should be a special one. And finally, Tom Williams is going to this game. It's Watford versus Man United. Can the Hornets do something here? Yeah, the not-so-Super Sunday clash. Watford here, 10-3 to to get a crucial victory for them. Their odds-on to go down. The draw is 11-4. to Manchester United are 8-11, odds-on to win this one. And actually, I'm down on them quite a lot of the time, but they should win this one. Mason Greenwood, by the way, is a good chance to start, you'd think, after his recent form. And he's 6-4 to to score any time. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Would you like to hear what one of the greatest minds in football thinks about Southend United, David? What do you think, James? <laughs> no, uh, no, no. Saul Campbell. And he's been interviewed on the Totally Football League show this week with Caroline Barker, Sam Parkin and Adrian Clark who will also be picking their best football league players, managers and games of the decade. Blimey, the Swats. They, we, we've not done anything like that on, on Totally Football. This decade, so I don't remember it being this big in 2009. Do you? What, when the decade yeah, ended? Yeah, it seems well, I was to... saying the other day that this has been the least kind of notable turn of a decade. And I posited this, I, I suggested that maybe that's because we just had a change of millennium and this feels like mm. small beer comparatively. But a younger person just said it was a, just because I've, you know, just had seen the, the numbers go around on the clock too many times and might be time to hang it up now, granddad. <laughs> Etc. Uh, anyway, that's all coming up in the Totally Football League show. They bother, they put in the effort. Also available for you is the second part of our Gianluca Vialli Golazzo two-parter. Woof. If you haven't heard the first part, you might want to start with that one. Richard Brown says, here's one for Duncan. Were Aston Villa, Burnley and West Ham to be relegated, would this be the first time that all of the teams to drop out of the, drop out of the top flight wore carrot, claret and blue? And can I add a little addendum on that? Would it be the first, the subsequent season, be the first time we'd had a top flight without any claret and blue? Or is that happening all the time? We will have had top flight seasons without a claret and blue. Right, okay. But it would be the first time that all three relegated teams wore that particular combo. I imagine. Alex, thanks for waiting because you asked all those, you know, way back at the start of the podcast to have Tom speak a bit of Polish at you. <clears throat> I think we all enjoyed the, 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 the brief snippet we got. So, Tom, why don't you, uh, why don't you close us out uh, with a few more choice phrases from do you speak football in Polish, which I believe is soon going to be a thing. Is it not? Are you it getting... is. It's, it's due out in Polish right. uh, next year, in fact. I'm okay. not sure how you translate do you speak football into Polish. Although, interestingly, in the French edition, they just left the title as it was, whereas right. in Germany, they translated it to Sprechen Sie Fußball. Oh. Sprechen Sie Fußball. Sprechen Sie Fußball. Okay. Um, 
How about this one? Podani na zapaleni pluk, uh, which means pneumonia pass, and that is a pass that fails to find its intended target. And if you play your teammate into trouble, which we would refer to as a hospital pass, uh, you would call it, um, it's referred to as putting someone on a horse. Like, oh, he's he's bloody put me... are you sure about this? Yes, James, I've researched this (laughs) quite intently. So he's put me on a horse there? Yeah. What? Why? I, I'm not entirely sure why, okay. but that is what it means. Sure it wasn't Andy Carroll. I mean, no, it'd be a nice little crossover if it was Andy Carroll. What, um, what about hospital... Uh, sorry, what about pneumonia passes? Why? Again, I don't know. Okay. Uh, any other ones? Um... By the way, if you're listening in Poland or have an in-depth knowledge of the whole kind of like the Polish footballing lexicon and you know why a wayward pa- a pass that fails to reach its target is a pneumonia pass or a the other one with the horse uh do yeah why they are that then do let us know because I'm fascinated um so a, a player um who has an opportunity to score a winning goal is said to have three points on his leg so it's something a commentator yeah. might say a guy gets through he's only got the keeper to beat he's got three points on his leg if he then slices the ball over the crossbar uh, he was said to have shot into God's window. That's apparently what stands above crossbars in Polish football stadiums. Brilliant. And by the way, could you say all those things in Polish? Because that was very much what Alex wanted. Um, no. <laughs> I mean, I, do you want me to attempt them? Uh, I don't know. It was Three for points Alex. on the leg is okay. or something along those lines. And to shoot in God's window is I am so sorry. <laughs> to right. the people of Poland. Okay. <laughs> Shooting in God's window. Very nice. If you're a fan of Slavic Ting, then you'll be delighted to know that uh, Monday's Totally Football Show will feature Sasha Gurionov alongside Michael Cox and Daniel Story. So that's nice. Meantime, hope you've enjoyed today's show with the return of the David Priest. He went to Ostersons and he came back. Did it? And he might be going back to Ostersons. It all depends what happens in the thing tomorrow. Fingers crossed. Not that I don't want to come back here. But yeah, no, but crossed, yeah. it'd be nice to continue that remarkable story. It would all be. Right. In the meantime, uh, David, it'd be nice to see you back again before, etc. and so on. And have a very happy Christmas in the meanwhile. Uh, and have a very happy Christmas. Tom, same to you. Thank you, James, and to you. Uh, although we'll shortly be working on the Fantasy Premier League podcast. We certainly will. Uh, yeah. And Duncan Alexander... Merry festive activities in your direction, additionally. Listener, we return on Monday. I hope you do too. Have a super weekend in the meanwhile. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com.